Our message this morning comes from Malachi 3, verses 13 through 18. It says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you? You have said, It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Adana. Let's pray. Father God, we have waited upon you. We long to hear your word. And if we do not, Lord, we pray that you would put that desire within us to hear from you today. We pray that you would anoint us, that you would give us strength to both speak and hear your word, for your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the early 1930s, British journalist agnostic and avowed communist sympathizer Malcolm Muggeridge moved to Moscow to experience firsthand what he thought would be the glories of communism. Even going so far as to call that political economic system the future. Saying we've seen the future And it works. But not long after his arrival in country, not long after seeing the economic disaster in Russia and the mountains of dead who had either starved or been brutally murdered, savagely and systematically destroyed by the chosen few who stood to gain from this system, Muggeridge quickly disavowed his naive enthusiasm. Disillusioned and overwhelmed by feelings of misplaced hope, staring now into a meaningless existence, he left Russia. And on the banks of a remote African beach years later, he determined to end his existence in suicide. Muggeridge waded out into the depths, intent on swimming into that watery abyss until exhaustion would overtake him. 
And just when he reached that point of utter exhaustion, as he began to drown, he realized how desperately he wanted to live. By God's grace, he made it back to that beach with a new lease on life. Eventually, he became a Protestant Christian, then later a Catholic, writing extensively on moral and ethical issues. And while some of us may have never gotten or never need to get to the point of such hopeless desperation as Muggeridge did off the shores of that African beach, God would have you and I know the meaningless existence that awaits those who misplace their hope in anything other than God himself. Now, to the natural man, hope in God seems like a vain and pointless thing, a profitless thing, something altogether counterintuitive to our experience, a swimming against the tide, if you will. Wouldn't it be easier if we just all went with the flow? After all, going with the flow seems prosperous, one might say. We see Israel beholden to this sort of pragmatic thinking in today's text. With Muggeridge, they might say, we've seen the future, and it works. The wicked prosper. Until it does not work, until they do not prosper, until they see the disaster of living in God's world in anything other than God's way. Muggeridge eventually saw this, realizing the vanity of such thinking. He went on to say, never forget that only dead fish swim with the tide. Only dead fish swim with the stream. So the question for us this morning is, will we be found among the wicked? Those swimming with the stream who find service to God to be a vain, profitless thing, or will we be found among the righteous? Those swimming against the stream who fear the Lord, who esteem his name. Now, whatever or whoever else you decide to pursue in this life, this question of what you do with God must be pursued. For God pursued his people unto death. And this one singular thing has eternal importance. Which brings us to the main idea of our text this morning. We see those found faithful to the Lord fear and esteem his name, granting them victory over the world's bondage and sparing them the coming judgment reserved for the wicked. Those found faithful to the Lord fear and esteem his name, granting them victory over the world's bondage and sparing them the coming judgment reserved for the wicked. Now, back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, God reminded his people that he had sovereignly elected them, chosen them, placed a special love upon them to be his people. They had returned from Persian exile about 100 years before 
still under Persian rule with their land reduced to a mere fraction of its former glory. As a result, they had forgotten God's love because their sinfulness had caused them to experience God's judgment. So God called them in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 1 to give him their best, for he is worthy. Instead, they brought God their worst, offering sacrifices that were blind, lame, and sick. And so God cursed the priests in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, for allowing this, chastising them for their failure to lead God's people in the way that they should go, giving honor to God, guarding knowledge, and seeking his instruction. And as the priests had gone, so had gone the people. One unfaithfulness led to another, which led to a, another practical outworking of unfaithfulness to God in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, manifested in unfaithfulness in marriage. Now, the inevitability of this happening was no wonder, for God's priests, God's messengers had failed to lead God's people in the way that they should go. So God promised in chapter 2, verse 17, on into chapter 3, verse 5, to send his own messenger to both purify his people through trial and vindicate his people through judgment of sinfulness. And then in chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, which we looked at last month, God addressed another practical outworking of unfaithfulness. You see, not only had they demonstrated unfaithfulness in, in what they offered God and how they treated their marriages, but also in terms of how they both used and viewed their finances. So he cursed the self-indulgence of his people, but he blessed those who faithfully used the resources entrusted to them in ways that honored him. Which brings us to our passage today, where we will see where all of this unfaithfulness ultimately manifests. It manifests in a lack of fear, in a lack of reverence for God. We see in verses 13 through 15 that people with selfish expectations will be frustrated with God. People with selfish expectations will be frustrated with God. In fact, we see in verse 13 that they speak against God. From, from the very beginning of the book of Malachi, God's people have questioned God's faithfulness as to whether or not he truly loved them. And he proves that love to them in election, in choosing them to be his people. But then after questioning God's faithfulness, they go on throughout the book to question their own unfaithfulness, as if to say, the problem's not been with us, God. It, it's been with you. We're happy with the decisions that we've made. Why can't you, God, be happy for us? So we've been unfaithful with our sacrifices. So we've been unfaithful with our marriages. So we've been unfaithful with our finances. Aren't you supposed to forgive us, God? Aren't you supposed to be merciful? They fail to see the hellishness of the life they've created for themselves. Which leads to verse 13 where God says to them, Your words have been hard against me. 
But you say, how have we spoken against you? Well, in fact, six times before now, they have questioned God in this book, failing to understand their sin. Now they question him a seventh time, bringing to completion their perfect disobedience. They spoke against God again and again, continually denying him his rightful place as God, bewilderingly questioning him as his right to judge their sin. My friends, if God does not have the right to judge our sin, then who does? For aside from God, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, but they see God as someone to be criticized, someone to find fault with, rather than the creator God to be worshipped and obeyed. How often do we see this in our conversations with one another? God should bend to our will. God should bend to our understanding. I don't understand what he's doing. Why can't it be this way? We limit God to our own understanding which unwittingly puts us in the place of God. And their motives prove purely mercenary. What's in it for us? If we follow God's will, if we follow God's way, there must be a payoff, and it must be immediate, because that's what happens when we walk by sight. We can only see what's immediately in front of us. But they deny having such a negative outlook we see, in fact, how deluded we can become when we complicate our life by our sin. We're not truly thinking correctly when we choose sin. Life becomes confusing. In fact, Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the saintly life is always a very simple life. The saintly life is always a very simple life. It's the ungodly whose lives are complicated. Sin always brings complications. It did at the very beginning when man sinned. And what did he have to do? He had to lie to cover his sin. And the moment men and women come back to God, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and live godly lives, their lives conform to a very simple pattern. But stuck in the muck and mire of their sin, they question God. And they have complicated everything. They murmur against him, thinking their complaint against him went unheard. But not so. He sees them when they're sleeping. He knows when they're awake. He knows they've been bad. They should have been good for God's sake. This is not Santa Claus. God knows. Instead, we see that they believe service to God to be a futile thing in verses 14 and 15. You said... It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Now, in saying that it's vain to serve God, they, in effect, reverse the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and thereby play the fool. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, we read, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then the preacher spends a couple of chapters in Ecclesiastes unpacking what a vain life looks like, pursuing everything under the sun other than God, from human-centered wisdom to women 
to wine, to wealth, to well-being and work, only to find that a life free from vanity, a life free from futility, can only be found by fearing God and keeping his commandments. But they've played the fool like so many before and so many after them. And they've asked the question, what's the point? It's vain to serve God. I want to do what I want to do. There's no profit in keeping his charge or walking in his way or even being sorrowful over our sin, they say. Friends, again, when we walk by sight rather than by faith, we can only see what's immediately before us. Like a child who can see no benefit in investing the money that his grandparents give him, instead immediately spending it on their pleasures, so too do those walking by sight see no benefit in investing in eternity, in living in God's world by God's way. They see no benefit in keeping his way, keeping his charge, or walking, it says, as in mourning before him. They ignore the need to rightly grieve over their sin. They show most, in fact, if not all of the signs of the popular grief model of Kubler-Ross, a common understanding of how people deal with grief, how people deal with mourning. They show all signs but acceptance. They will not accept that they've sinned. Instead, they show signs of denial. They show signs of anger, signs of bargaining, and even signs of depression, but they will not accept just how far short they have fallen. Brothers and sisters, it's only when we accept that we sin that we will feel any compunction to confess our sin and be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And it's only then that we will experience healing. It's only then where we will have fellowship with one another. Unfortunately, they have not accepted their sin. Instead, they say this, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So, so they go so far to say that those who live in opposition to God's will are both blessed and prosperous with no consequences levied for their behavior. Arrogance becomes a, a blessed thing, a, a lifestyle worthy of pursuit. Self-importance and self-focus pay, so they say. Ages before the advent of gathering followers and subscribers and online forums, human, nat human nature pursued self-aggrandizement in similar, albeit more primitive ways. Well, in like fashion, they say evildoing becomes prosperous. It's good to be bad. But God had already pronounced woe. God had already pronounced ruin on such thinking in Isaiah 5.20. He says in Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Now, if that's not a commentary on our day and age, I don't know what is. How often do you hear people calling evil things good things and calling good things evil things? God pronounces affliction, distress, woe, 
as a natural consequence to such foolish declaration. Now, that's not to say that life will be free from anguish or distress if one lives a life pleasing to God. But we do read in 1 Peter 3.17 that it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. And the reason it's better, the passage says, is, is multitudinous. Ultimately, you will, number one, love life. Number two, you will experience good days. And number three, you will pursue peace for the Lord both sees and hears you and will ultimately deliver you from evil, but not so for the wicked. In verses 13 through 15, we see people with selfish expectations will be frustrated with God, which leads to verses 16 through 18, where we see that people who fear God will be spared judgment. People who fear God will be spared judgment. In fact, we see in verse 16 that the Lord remembers those who honor him. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Now, let me pause there for a second. I want you to notice the need for community in this verse. We, we go over this verse and we see the fear of the Lord, but we don't notice what they do as a result of fearing the Lord. They spoke with one another. Now, surely God speaks through his word, speaks through prayer, speaks through creation, but he often speaks in community, in the gathering of his saints together, those who revere him, those who bear witness to his word, who pray, who sing, who worship together, who confess their sins to one another. It says they spoke with one another. Now, at a minimum, that happens for us at our Sunday gathering where we sing, pray, and listen to the word together. But that barely scratches the surface, may I say. That barely scratches the surface. It often happens in the conversations that we have together after service. It often happens in the prayer meeting and in the community groups, not to mention the more informal gatherings that we have throughout the week where we speak to one another. So I would encourage you, if you're only scratching the surface, consider moving out into the depths beyond the Sunday service. For Christians are a communal people, a people who gather, who speak, who listen. And you and I need to hear from more than just the select few up front during the service. In fact, we need to hear from you and you and you. We need to hear from you. For each of you has something to offer this gathering of those who fear the Lord. And look at the results as verse 16 continues. It says, the Lord paid attention and heard them. Again, permit me to pause. Surely God listens to individual prayers. The Bible is replete with such example, examples. But there's something powerful in the gathering of his believers together that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. If two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
God especially listens. He especially pays attention and hears when we gather. Now, sin by its nature breeds chaos. It breeds disagreement. Confession of sin leads to cooperation such that God pays attention and he hears. And it says, a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and who esteemed his name. I want you to notice that God keeps a formal record, a book of remembrance, documenting the righteous deeds of those who both fear and esteem him. Elsewhere in scripture, we see something similar. For instance, in Daniel 12.1 and Revelation 20.12, books will be opened where the dead will be judged according to their actions. One commentator says this. He says, although God will not remember our sins for all those that are in Christ, according to Isaiah 43.25, he will remember our righteous acts, including our speech as well as our tears, as we see in Psalm 56, 8. But I want you to notice God's careful attention here. He sees, he hears, he cares. This has been a theme throughout the book of Malachi, where God sees and ultimately judges the behavior of both those who fear him and those who do not. He pays attention, and he expects us to pay attention as well. In fact, he condemns those who do not pay attention to him in Zechariah 1.4, which begs the question this morning, are you paying attention to God? Do you want to know what the fear of the Lord is? It's this. Are you paying attention to God? And if so, then how so? I want you to imagine me, imagine with me for a second being physically separated from a spouse or a loved one for an extended period of time. In my 25 years being married to Adina, I think we've been separated at different times over, over a couple of years. The question I have for you is what would you do during those times to maintain connection? Wouldn't you use every means necessary be it phone calls or texts or video calls, letters, emails, carrier pigeons to stay in touch? And wouldn't you contact that loved one as, as often as you possibly could out of your love for them? Well, the same goes for God. Currently, we endure physical separation from his presence, even spiritual separation in some sense because of our sin. But we too have means of connection. We have his word. We have his ear. We have his spirit. And we have his people. In other words, we have the Bible, prayer, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the fellowship of the church. So I ask you today, do you have a desire to know God more by connecting with him through the means he's provided? Or is he more akin to that troublesome relative that you have to reach out to periodically, whom you probably have to see at some point this year, or who you have to probably see at some point this year, week, more out of appeasement than love? 
Are you paying attention to God? And do you realize he pays attention to you? Now, that causes me to be both grateful and fearful. Grateful because I know he cares. He cared enough to send his son to pay my debt of sin. He cares enough to listen and answer my prayers and speak to me in his word. And he cares enough to have me rise again after death as Christ arose to be with him in eternity. Fearful, though, because I know he sees my sin, my sin that needs atoning, and yet still grateful, for God says repeatedly throughout Scripture that he will remember his people's sins no more. Thank you, Jesus. And so as verse 16 says, we esteem him. We see in verse 16 that the Lord remembers those who fear him. Which leads to verse 17 where we see that the Lord treasures and preserves his people. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. What a metaphor we have here. He calls his people his treasured possession. Back in 2010, a millionaire antiques dealer by the name of Forrest Fenn buried another treasured possession. Thankfully, not believers. He buried another treasured possession, a chest full of gold coins worth a couple of million dollars in the Rocky Mountains with subtle clues written in a 24-line poem as to where to find it. Over the years, thousands searched for it. Five people even died trying to find it, including the pastor of a church before it was found in 2020. And while all deaths have a certain tragedy to them, I find this pastor's death particularly tragic, as he should have already possessed the greatest treasure. Now, I'm not faulting him. Some of us have our hobbies. We like to hike, and who wouldn't like a couple million dollars worth of gold? But he should have already possessed the greatest treasure, spiritually speaking, in being a part of the kingdom of God. But not only should he have possessed the greatest treasure, but if he had indeed put his faith and trust in Christ, he'd also be considered a treasured possession. God loves his people so much so that he pursues his treasure to death. As one of my favorite hymns so eloquently puts it, as we sang earlier, he left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh, my God, it found out me. And because of this sacrifice, God now spares us the judgment that we so rightly deserve. Rebels become children. Refuse becomes treasure. We see in verse 16 that the Lord remembers those who fear him. We see in verse 17 that the Lord treasures 
and preserves his people, which leads finally to verse 18, where we see that the Lord gives discernment to his people. He says, then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not serve him. Now, this harkens back to verse 14, where, we, where some said it was vain to serve God. Now we see the utter foolishness of such a claim play out. Distinctions between followers of God and followers of the self or of the crowd or any other human-centered scheme will be evident, will be discernible to the one who follows God. What is that distinction? Well, let me state it in the negative first. The distinction is not sinfulness. Both the righteous and the wicked are sinful. The distinction is what is done with their sin. By the work of the Holy Spirit, the righteous comes to hate their sin, confess their sin, repent of their sin, and confess and declare their unending need for Jesus to atone for their sin. The wicked, on the other hand, embrace their sin, minimize their sin, ignore their sin, and even enjoy their sin. You shall see a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. It's what's done for their sin. It comes down to who pays for their sin. The righteous, Jesus pays. The wicked, they pay. Now, this is not the first time that such a distinction was made. We see it, in fact, in Exodus eleven seven, where God made a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And we see it throughout Scripture. And we will see such a distinction once more in the final judgment spoken of in Matthew 25, where God will gather all the nations before him, separating people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And those who found it vain to serve God, who found it pointless to worship him, will be forever granted their wish to be departed from him, except it will not be a pleasant departure free from judgment. The righteous judge must judge rightly sending the accursed into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Friends, there's no middle ground. There's no third group. There's no sub-distinction made for the relatively harmless people who think their ignorance or their neglect of God to be but a small thing. There is but one distinction. Those found righteous, those swimming against the tide, covered by the shed blood of Christ, who've repented of their sins and sought to live in God's world by God's way, trusting not in a righteousness of their own, but solely in the imputed or credited righteousness of Christ who will receive eternal life. Or, two, those found wicked, those swimming with the tide, who lived in their own way, even if it wasn't all that bad, comparatively speaking, who did not see any need to serve God or walk in his way or mourn over their sin before him, who trusted in their own supposed 
imperfect righteousness or the supposed imperfect righteousness of any other other than Christ who will receive eternal punishment. Friends, all of us will one day see this distinction realized. And it's not going to be in some sort of man-made earthly utopia like the one that Malcolm Muggeridge had pinned all of his hopes to when he moved to Russia in the 1940s, 30s. It will be in the holy city. It will be in the new Jerusalem coming down, it says, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, where the dwelling place of God will be with man, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We long for that day. All of history moves towards this singular point. Therefore, those who put their hope, their faith in Jesus Christ, who fear the Lord, who faithfully follow and esteem him, will be freed from the world's bondage and spared the judgment to come. The question for us is, when Jesus comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith requires that I hate my sin. Faith requires that I confess my sin. Faith requires that I repent of my sin. Faith requires that I declare my unending need for Jesus to atone for my sin. And so as I come to the Lord's table, as you come to the Lord's table, we confess, we repent, we declare our unending need for Jesus to atone for our sin.